So everything on our scale is 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 large. And so the impact that we have with uh, paying attention to how we procure our food makes a difference in our local economies and our region. Not only that, but also I think it's just fair for people to, you know, it's a part of education too, because we're actually educating, the, you know, our visitors, staff and patients on where their food's coming from. So in the first 18 months, we were able to transition from under 17% locally sourced and sustainable food programs and build upon that to where now we are the number one local and sustainable food program in the UC system. It's about showing that it's possible and it can be done on an institutional level. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. What are we talking about? We're talking about food. We're talking about food and how it's grown. And we all have some interest, whether we're growing food or whether we, of course, we're all consuming food. We want to know something about it. Well, my guest today is in a unique perspective because he's not only looking at it in terms of how it's grown, but what we eat, when we eat, and and a pretty large audience of people that are consuming food every day. And I'm happy to welcome Chef Santana Diaz, who's the Director of Culinary Operations for UC Davis. Santana, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Hey, thank you for having me, Roger. Oh, you know what? I've been wanting to have you on here for a long time. And to kind of explain to people some more, you were at University of California Davis Health Programs, got a big hospital. And as many people know that listen to this, the University of California Davis itself is known to be maybe the best agriculture school in the world. Some argue, I think there's a little competition here and there, but it's a great school. And it combines uh, food production and what's happening in that area, but also health areas as well. But on the health side, the University of California has several of the best hospitals, in, perhaps in the world, but certainly in America. And the one UC Davis, which is in Sacramento, that health system, you're at is is particularly impressive in a, in a lot of categories. U.S. News and World Report rank it as uh, best hospitals for a number of different issues. But when people come to the hospital, they either work there or they're they've checked into the hospital. Your team and you decide on where the food's coming from. You know what people are going to be getting in the cafeterias, what's available that could be made for the for all the patients. Mm-hmm. And you're feeding at least over 6,000 meals a day. But you're also taking an interest in where that food comes from and whether it's not local, it's local or not. And you're looking at all these issues. That's a really, really interesting perspective. Um, and when you come into that spot where you're looking at it, how how are you making those decisions of deciding what can be available for for your patients, for the people visiting the hospitals, and then uh, where it comes from, where you source it? How do you how do you approach that? Yeah, you know what it's a 
there's a lot to unpack here. Um, you know, uh, this is my first job working uh, for the University of California. So working here at UC Davis Health here in Sacramento, we are the largest healthcare facility uh, in our in our region, a level one trauma uh, facility. We are continuing to expand. So to touch on what you had mentioned about even just the number of meals per day, yeah, we're roughly around 65 to 6,700 meals every day on our 144-acre campus, and we're growing. Uh, we are continuing to expand. Uh, a lot of lot of growth that's coming out of that. But what within that 65, 6,700 meals a day, we have about 15 to 1,800 of those are patient care meals. And so when we think about food, um, you know, in a healthcare facility, it hasn't always had the best stigma, right? I mean, we could be honest, you know, in general, I think all of us can agree on that, that health, you know, food at hospitals isn't known for being the best food or restaurant quality or ultimately, you know, tested for its, you know, tastiness and, and, and aesthetic look uh, and presentation. Uh, it's basically just been here is this food that qualifies with the nutrition that our dietitians and nutrition and teams evaluate to tell you how much magnesium is in it and how much vitamin C or what have you, whatever of your ailment is, or one of the 38 different diets that we have to adhere to that we produce a meal for and say, here you go. But that computer system doesn't necessarily always, you know, take into account color how it looks, and even, you know, the end quality, uh, the end product of like how it tastes. Does it taste good? Do I even want to eat this? Right. And so when I looked at the the opportunities, when I, when I first came here, uh, I was looking at how do we, how do we fix this? And it's such a big daunting thing to think about. Like, how do you, how do you, how do we readdress it? How do we reimagine hospital food? And so we took a look at, you know, evaluating recipes and and from my background coming from, uh, you know, a family of farmers, ranchers, and, uh, you know, even generationally, um, I started looking at, well, well, let's look at where we're sourcing this food from first, right? Because at this magnitude, you know, of, uh, I mean, we'll just talk about chicken, right? So we go through 63,900 and somewhat pounds of four ounce boneless skinless chicken breast. And that's just one line item. And I've said this before, like that's a lot. You're talking about 31 and a half tons of just chicken breasts. Well, we have thighs that we do. We have, you know, burgers that we serve. You know, we also go through, uh, you know, uh, our vegan diet. So everything on our scale is, is, is large. And so the impact that we have with uh, paying attention to how we procure our food makes a difference in our local economies and uh, our region. Uh, not only that, but also I think it's just fair for people to, you know, it's a part of education too, because we're actually educating, uh, you know, our visitors, staff and patients on where their food's coming from um, and trying to preserve the natural bounty that grows not only in this great state of California that we're, that we're in, but even the six counties that touch Sacramento. So in the first 18 months, we were able to, transition from under 17% locally sourced and sustainable food programs and build upon that to where now um, we are the number one uh, local and sustainable food program in, in the UC system. Um, so we're trying to create a model that uh, not just to be on an island here and say, look at our program, 
and we're better than anyone. It's no, it's about showing that it's possible and it can be done on an institutional level, which a lot of people have, you know, uh, think is very difficult to do, but we're trying to prove it's possible. Well, let's back up again a, a little bit here now. So when you came into this job, you have a background as a chef in restaurants that needed to make a profit and they couldn't serve what would have been called hospital food or you know cafeteria food you had that you had to have food that people wanted to come back and and enjoy it again and so how was that to come into again a situation like you are in a in a big system like this and where you have been a chef in restaurants that had to satisfy very discerning customers and then look at the customers in this case, people that work at the hospitals and people that are patients at the hospital and try to earn some positive feedback on to the taste and quality of the food from that perspective. And then we're going back up to the sourcing again. Well, you know, that's a, uh, that's, that's one thing that we were looking at. So, uh, pre pandemic, right. So if we were to backtrack, um, and and taking what you're saying about uh, my my restaurant experience, what meant a lot to patrons was when uh, the chef would come out of the kitchen and touch the table, right? Hey, how was your dinner this evening? How was your lunch? You know, how's that cocktail? And get that firsthand zero degrees of separation of understanding if somebody liked the food. Um, you know, but also just, uh, it's a hospital, it's a hospitable thing to do. That's part of hospitality. So when I thought about like, what can we do here, um, at the, in the hospital setting now to get the answers of like directly from the patients, well, now we're talking about bedside touching. So pre pandemic, what I was doing was actually going through and just meeting, you know, randomly with different patients, you know, going up and checking on them. How was your lunch? What did you, you know, what, you know, I'd look at their diets, right? And, and you know, ask them, you know, hey, uh, what would you like while you're within our care? Because the average stay here was about 6.1 days. And what that looks like is you're going to have three meals a day. That's 18 meals, right? So you um, may as well try to give them something that they wanted to eat. So I take that feedback and those suggestions and and think about it on our scale. Is it possible? Like, you know, we're not going to be, you know, making homemade tamales here uh, by the thousands uh, every every week. You know, we just can't keep up with that. There's certain things we just can't do. Um, but there's a lot that we can do. And so taking those experiences again from the restaurant, trying to apply them here in an institutional scale that's just completely blown up because we we work at the capacity of like 60 restaurants, right? And every day, like we don't, we don't close, you know, on, on different holidays, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Christmas, if it's the 4th of July, if it's 115 degrees outside, if it's freezing outside, doesn't matter, we're open, right? So we, we have to keep going. So the point is, is that uh, to try to shift these changes and implement these changes it's difficult because you have no time to regroup and say and pause and say, hey, okay, this this didn't work last week. Let's try it this week. You have to integrate these changes while the machine is still working, right? So it makes it very difficult for, and I think this is part of one of the reasons why healthcare has been so difficult to shift is because it, it's just, it doesn't stop, right? So you have to integrate these changes as you're doing, say, 
introduced a new program as you're still working through the old program and the evolution in between the two as it's evolving to the new program. It's very difficult. Well, they say sometimes you could have too many chefs in the kitchen and 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 I would imagine in some cases, certainly with patients, doctors are sometimes the chefs in the kitchen. I mean, aren't, you have to also accommodate, don't you, the special instructions or dietary restrictions and you know, whether people should have, you know, get a vegan meal or not and all of that. That's That's got to be difficult with all these opinions and all the different ways that they have to have things seasoned or not seasoned and salt, no salt and all these things. Well, and that's, I think, where inadvertently healthcare food service got into the uh, the stigma of it not being very good, was the diet that was used to blanket serve most patients in hospital settings um, was a low-sodium diet meal. Yeah. So what does that mean? Okay, so you don't have that much salt or no salt, right? So, of course, the average person is going to think that the, the meal is very bland. Um, and so what we also looked into here at our hospital, um, I started looking into what diets are most of our patients were on. Yes. I mentioned 38 different diets, but how many are on a regular diet? And so I, I started looking at that and it was, a, the number was 50, it's ranging between 50 and 55% of our, our patients, uh, that are within our care are on a regular diet. So why are we serving them a low sodium meal? Right. And not that it has to be super high in salt or anything, but I'm just saying we can season it. Why wouldn't we? And so that's how we've been ad- addressing this opportunity um, is a shift in the in, in the dynamics of how we're serving our patient meals and, and shifting to a, a patient care room service model. You know, when people say a regular diet in America, even outside of hospitals, they're using the acronym SAD right now, you know, the SAD diet, which is supposed to be an acronym for standard american diet um well that's not really standards that you'd be talking about then i i think they're talking about drive-throughs that people are overdoing on french fries and coca-cola and so forth but that's often used to talk about american diets you know the standard american diet is, is sad so you're and in your kitchens you're not sad you're actually taking something different and you and now let's switch back to sourcing, too. So if you're looking at caring about meeting all their needs and still having delicious, interesting food and, and so forth. So why was it decided? Who decided that you should try to source locally? What's what's the reason for prioritizing trying to source locally as much as possible? Uh, well, you know, what? it really comes down to the leadership of the organization. Um, so the leadership of the organization was looking to make a shift, um, you know, in their food program, you know, how can we, um, improve patient care in one way was through food. Right. And so, so they went on a search and, uh, maybe it was the idea of, okay, do we need a chef, you know, um, do we need to hire a chef? And, and, and I ended up being the first chef that, uh, that stayed to to move through and 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 create this change here uh you know with all you know we're in a uh, we're in a pretty large bureaucratic entity right it's it's big there's a lot of red tape you know uh hospitals have to follow certain guidelines uh you know for even vendors that were approved to even purchase food from right so when we talk about 
<clears throat> bringing a farm to hospital program into this institution um it was it was interesting to to figure it out but uh, we have figured it out and the point was uh with our procurement a lot of things happened by just by chance that we didn't realize were going to happen so if i and put it in perspective a lot of institutions may purchase frozen meats and then force thaw them underwater cold water running on them you thought out maybe you have done it at your home sometimes when maybe you have something in the freezer some ribs or some fish and you're just thawing it out underwater cold water on your sink right we've all i think done it to some extent sure but when you think about how much water that is wasting and on the magnitude of what this program is and what other st- institutions are that is thousands of gallons of water being wasted just to thaw the food unless you slack it out in a refrigerator uh, from a freezer to a refrigerator which takes days in real estate to do or what if we just brought in food fresh and used it <laughs> in a timely manner which is what we do right so we not only have, have created a, a a fresh food program like even all the way down to the vegetables cuz uh, i could just say we don't do it anymore but we used to you know, serve frozen vegetables here in our food program. You know, these typical little vegetable mixes of, of you know, your carrot, cauliflower, broccoli, typical Malibu mix that you just get in your freezer and then you, uh, we'd steam it, serve it. Again, not seasoned, bland, right? And the nutritional value of these things too, I think is lost and not preserved when you're just like, it's, it's frozen and we're just like, you know, cooking under hot water or steaming the heck out of it. And it's, you know, it doesn't really hold its nutritional value. So anyways, looking at these things, I think these are all unintended things that were just happening, right? We were so focused on what medicines to provide them, what pills I should say to be more specific, or what drugs can be provided for said, uh, for said patient to help them, you know, with whatever ailment they have. And not thinking about the food that we're giving them while they're within our care. So going back to saying if we just offer fresh vegetables, which now we do, it was one of the first switches that I was able to help change and make here. Uh, So in the fresh vegetable program was, uh, this is going to be a zinger here. We started uh, procuring what was in season, right? So we look at what was in season and then just serve those vegetables on the side instead of just these generic blends of vegetables that never changed and offered year round. And, uh, and so we didn't freeze them. They came in fresh. We would, uh, you know, add a little olive oil, uh, maybe even a little bit of salt and pepper and roast them mm-hmm. and then serve them to complement the foods that we were making. And so these things, um, you know, started being noticed very quickly and patients. And when I started, you know, again, following up on those, bedside touches Mm -hmm. we're able to hear you know oh this is good wasn't expecting this from the hospital this looks great you know i oh and not always was it positive some were just like i like the fake mashed potatoes Uh, where did those go because that was the other thing that we changed immediately was uh you know the powdered mashed potatoes that we were serving was rampant throughout the program and i think that there's a time and place for everything for people that are uh, have on special dysphagia diets, uh, have trouble swallowing, need smooth textures, you know what? The safer route 
would be using a, you know potentially using those powdered potatoes for that particular diet but not give it to the rest of the people or the rest of the patients that aren't on those diets right we don't serve the masses what only you know 6% of our patient care need so when we switched to real mashed potatoes you know that was another thing so it started with the vegetables and I started looking at starches and uh, ultimately as a whole people were welcoming to the change um, and it's just started to jump on into this movement and agree with kind of align with the food is medicine movement that is finally starting to seem like it's catching ground. Um, so, so what about the proteins? So we started looking at uh, all the beef. Uh, I was doing lamb at the time. And so we were sourcing actually everything here from California for the most part. Um so 90%, actually, I think it's 98% of our beef are coming from organic and or regenerative ranchers in California. Um, our chicken is coming from Southern California. Uh, the lamb is coming from California and, and processed here locally at, in Dixon um, at Superior Farms. That's organic. Um, the fish, uh, that's one of the things I'm... I'm you know, was able to participate with the James Beard Foundation impact programs as an impact chef. And at that time, back in 2018, there was a program called Smart Catch Program. So the James Beard Foundation would evaluate your sustainability purchases and procurement with respect to seafood and fish. Uh, at that time, by 2019, actually, by, by the end of 2018, we were actually the only Smart Catch leader in the nation. Uh, that was a hospital. Um, and what that did was it was a third-party auditing verification of how we procure fish. So when we look at all these things, what our opportunities were, and, and using the third-party auditors like the James Beard Foundation Smart Catch Program um, or entities like Practice Green Health and Healthcare Without Harm, who evaluate all the UC health programs now and a lot of the hospitals here nationwide, it verified what we're doing it's not just us saying we're doing it it's third party third party verified that we're doing it so are you seeing examples of farms that wouldn't exist without you i mean are there local farms that you've become significant and and you're hearing stories how it's making a difference that they're able to continue to be maybe to maybe at a smaller scale because they're able to do local than they would have been without you well you know what we're seeing that it's impacting and preserving what is grown here in this region so an example would be working with uh, a, a delta farmer for asparagus right and so but asparagus is a very expensive crop to grow uh, it takes time it's hand cut uh so the labor's there you know it's got all these other issues right uh it grows can quick can grow quickly when it's in season you know you got to harvest it and keep going and then you have to have a buyer all right well, when we were when when we really thought about this program and really diving deep, it really comes down to forecasting the forward forecasting opportunities that we have to let the farmer know that yes, you have an end buyer. That eliminates the risk to the farmer. The farmers have had such a hard time, and uh, you know, generation over generation, you know, when you do say the old school farmers that were like, hey, I don't want to pass on this 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 tough job. Uh, to my children. So I want to send them to school to do something else other than farming, right? Because it was very stressful. You know, you you have all these things that you cannot control, inclement weather, right? And even look at nowadays, like the weather is getting even more challenging to try to predict, 
right? Mm-hmm. The seasons are seem to be changing. So what I'm saying is like, if you could eliminate some of that risk from the farmer, which has to do with purchasing their end product that they're growing, that they've already vested all this time, money, energy, and 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 into, and say, hey, yes, you do have a buyer. Well, then they're more apt to to, to grow it. Now, what's happened is like you take the example of the asparagus and look at Delta, our Delta region, and we've lost thirty plus farmers that used to grow asparagus over the decades. Sure. And why? Why? Because they can't compete with uh, the uh, the prices of, of uh, that we're receiving in our grocery stores of asparagus from south of the border. Yeah. So what does that do? Well, they start changing what they grow. So now you have more tomatoes, you know, that are being grown because you can can those, right? But this region has enough tomatoes being grown, right? So what's the next thing, right? And so without programs like institutions like ours that are trying to forward forecast and have these relationships with farmers and and give them the contract, have a handshake deal with them saying, I will buy your product. What's what's the incentive for the farmer to grow expensive uh, crops like like asparagus locally? You know, and that's that is really a good example because um, what ends up happening when that production shifted to south of the border, the uh, the labor rates primarily it was the labor rates uh, that were you know working in a, a area that's processing and putting in packages and so forth. It, it's like twenty percent of the salaries that were required up up here in California. So they they go down there, but then you also are. In some cases, I think that product is going to a distributor in Texas sometimes and then shipping them back into California. So you're putting the miles on moving that food. It's a thousand miles south of here, but its route back here is sometimes going almost a thousand miles east of where it is in Mexico and then coming 1,500 miles back up here. That just doesn't make any sense at all if you start looking at the carbon footprints probably. Right. And that's the other thing and you know, why we focus so much on just the great, you know, our state of California for procurement. Uh, that's really what we've been focusing on is like the reduction of carbon emissions and how far our food is traveling to get from said farm to our table. And so uh, eliminating, you know, uh, I guess we can go as simple as this, an orange. Florida oranges will always be cheaper than California oranges. And it doesn't matter how many you buy. I mean, are you following me right now? Like a Florida orange will always be cheaper. You know, the reason why is because California labor is more expensive. Our property taxes are more expensive. And, uh, you know, oh, we have this water issue too. You know, go through drought years and, you know, water is more expensive. So it doesn't matter if I bought every orange, if we're talking about volumes and how the typical model works is that, oh, the more you buy, the lo- the lower the price. That is a farce with respect to the farm to fork, say, food. Farm to fork or local food is here. Commodity is here. It will never be that low. It's impossible. It's impossible. So why are we trying to do that? And and if we try to do that, that means somebody's getting cut out on payment, which, you know, farmers need to make their money. And so the the cost of doing business, right, is is what it is. You know, I can't tell. I don't dictate to the farmer what, what to charge me for, say, oranges. I just pay what they say that it costs. But I know it's more expensive than... Florida oranges. So how I'm trying to explain to my leadership into the financial part of the, the the financial, the fiscal impact of how expensive this program is, is we're trying to measure it not about money. This is the bigger story, right? Is trying to figure out how do you quantify the regional benefit of that local orange that we're buying? 
we're supporting the local farmer, right? But also supporting the the local, uh, you know, folks that are harvesting uh, those oranges, the distribution company that's local, you know, and, and the, everything here in our region, right? Because if we buy the orange from Florida, nothing against Florida, right? Florida's a great state, but that money is eventually getting spent in Florida. When we buy locally, that money is generated in our local economy. So there is another layer that's uh, it's it's like on a different P and L statement, right? And I haven't figured out where that P and L statement is, right? To justify the 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 what well, this program's doing. And the other thing too that could probably make your life easier in some respects is pick up the phone to the food distributor that's a, a national food distributor, and uh, you're really in a way cutting out the middleman. I mean, the the you're taking out a system, a part of it that has to make money too. So in theory, at least, you should be saving a little money as a procuring and maybe making a little better for the for the farmer too because you don't have this these extra steps in between wouldn't it be wouldn't it be the case yeah what you're seeing and uh, what you're reading between the lines is uh uh there is a whole nother layer of people making money on on our food program that maybe don't need to be added in there yeah um and so that would be that would anger a lot of people to hear <laughs> that well, are making money. Say, on this you, you want to get your phone call returned because you still got to get your napkins and everything else uh, distributed every single day from those big companies. So I'm not even mentioning them by name, but they could guess. It's uh, one sure. Of, well, I mean, uh, and there's a there's a place time and a place for everything, right? So sure. the broad the broadliners that we're contracted with, yes, I need disposable clamshell containers. I need napkins. You know, we need these things. You know, paper towels, right? Uh, we, we we there are things that we just inherently need every day toilet paper right and then you can imagine how many i don't deal with that side of the the operation but i mean this is a, a a three and a half million square foot campus right now that is doubling in size within the next six years uh so if, it's just a big place so again time and place for what we need and uh all i'm all this program is suggesting is can we just pay more attention to where our food is coming from and what we're putting in it when we prepare it I like to be able to pronounce all the ingredients uh, to the meals that we produce here, and I can. My favorite preservative to use is vinegar, right? I can pronounce the word vinegar. I know what vinegar is, and we get our vinegar from Ceres, California, right? So just for a little bit down uh, I-5, south of us. Yeah. I, 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 there, I can't tell you how many things I can go look in the grocery store, in your typical grocery store, and just flip the label over, and I can't pronounce half the ingredients that are listed. I don't even know what they are. Right? Sure. Why? Why are we doing that? So this program, we do not add extra additives or preservatives as we look to educate and say and use food as medicine, because it's going back to what you're saying about somebody being admitted to the hospital. Most times, I mean, a lot of these diseases are food-related diseases. Sure, sure, sure. That's the, that sad diet we were talking about. Yes. You know, and that, and that brings up another issue as far as safety is concerned. Say, for example. You got a lot of rice near here, and you can you can source rice, but there also are a lot of regulations in California, but they're pretty restrictive about the chemicals that can be used, say, on rice production, pesticides, and so forth. There are other states that grow rice that don't have any regulations or almost none. Now, that doesn't even come into the consideration for most people, but when you're sourcing, like you know what the, the health regulations are, or the, the pesticide regulations in some states where, again, other states 
don't have those regulations. Is that a reason for concern? I don't know. Maybe uh, it's something that people might want to know about and that uh, know that you're also sourcing from an area that has uh, regulations that are trying to maintain, you know, contamination or keep it under control. Yeah, I think that's uh, what we're what we're alluding to here and starting to touch on is is like blockchain technology, right? Um, Explain that. So being able to there the 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 technology exists today now it didn't always but now it exists to where you can actually know where your food comes from. There's a lot of new companies coming out there with labels that you can eventually just use your phone and 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 look at the QR code and it should be able to tell you it could in theory tell you what farm, what ranch, what lot, where this said item came from i think this is very good for transparency of of the system but also when it comes to outbreaks right you would know you can recall different food outbreaks in our lifetime that is like a lot of them had to do with lettuces and e coli right things that nature different lettuces some were spinach and you know some were romaine right and when you think about this listen here when you think about the impact of what was really happening we didn't know because this food system just gathered a bunch of, uh, you know, lettuces from different farms all over the country and just put them in, uh, you know, mix them all together in these big warehouses and then relabel them and then distribute it out to every restaurant, you know, uh, every uh, grocery store, every hospital, every institution, right? And so the problem was with that whole mixing of everything that uh, would make it cheaper, for the entity that's selling these products saying, okay, if I bought this, this lot of uh, this many acreages of lettuce from this farmer and this lot and this many acreages from this farmer, and I blend it all together, I, you know, this one might be more expensive, but that one's a lot cheaper. And so in the overall end, they win, right? Volume trumps. Mm-hmm. Problem with that was then when you try to have, you know, the source transparency is just gone, right? When you mix everything together and then you try to figure out what, where did this leaf of lettuce come from? What came from, came from one of, 500 farms we don't know and so back in the day you just have the news reporters telling you about an outbreak and on your local you know tv and they just tell you to throw it away right so if you got this in your refrigerator throw it away right got this spinach bought between this time and this time throw it away because they didn't know how you know how to trace it back well what the impacts that does is incites fear right to us as consumers right you know the 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 typical, you know, romaine farmer or lettuce farmer doesn't recoup from that for months because people are afraid to buy the product, mm-hmm. right? So there's a, there's all these things that come out of an outbreak, right? Whereas if you had if you instilled this blockchain technology on everything, well, then you would know. Oh, actually, it's this lettuce that came from this area, this region, this farm, even, and then you could sequester it, and then notify the people that it would be affected versus telling people across America to throw out all their spinach. Well, yeah, absolutely. And this is going to be so, so huge. And even some of these products that are being sourced from around the world and come in, you don't know the story they're coming from. In fact, there's something out uh, even, even this uh, week, as we're talking about this, they were saying that uh, there's an issue that Europe is going to start banning uh, tomato products coming from China because the slave labor in the Xinjiang province uh, uh, was involved and they're finding out that slave labor was involved and so they're going to ban the tomato products. But it doesn't keep them from exporting to some other countries 
and calling them whatever that Mediterranean country is and sending them to the states. And that's where you get back to if you're local and you know the rules and regulations of your country and your state and you know the origin and you've got the information like you're talking about with blockchain um, and they want to have people to care like you and your team that's watching for these things. That's that's a game changer and can be important for, I think, health and safety, too. Definitely. The the blockchain technology opportunity that exists today and that, you know, it's been around, it just hasn't been implemented uh, we're looking to 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 partner and work with you know entities uh, that use it, uh, but yeah, for health and safety, that's huge, right? Again, just you an know, outbreak. Now, I want to touch on just a couple other quick things, and then let you, let you wrap up here too, because because that is um, what you're doing is pioneering. You're you're doing an, uh, something that's important in this system, and and I'm sure others are looking at what you're doing. Do you find uh, that other institutions, including other hospitals and school systems and so forth, are are contacting you and saying, gee, how do you do this? We think maybe we should try to do more local supply. How how do we make that happen? Yeah, you know what? It's interesting. Um, you know, we're we're working, you know, hand in hand with even across the causeway and working with UC Davis campus, right? So we're the health system, we're the campus. If we were to procure together, we'd be the largest procurement effort uh, in this region if we were to combine our efforts. But again, it comes down to leadership, right? And different things, budgets, goals of entities, different chancellors, right, uh, of different UCs, uh, presidents of different school systems. If it's not a priority, then the status quo continues, right? But we have to start looking at... uh, what we're doing, uh, and especially in large institutions, right? Um, because we are are impactful. Restaurants have done a great job here locally of you know supporting the farm to fork movement. But is it enough to shift, you know, the 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 food system? Well, the answer is no. It's been proven. They've been doing it for you know decades, and it still hasn't changed. It, it needs the institutions like ours to collaborate with others, right? So to answer your question, yes, working with Sac City Unified School District was a great opportunity. Uh, their chef there and their director. Um, we we talk all the time. We're trying to figure out how can we collaborate and join forces and procure together to make a larger impact. So that's Sac City Unified School District. Um, we are working with um, UC Davis campus, Sac State. Uh, we're looking at this the university as well. We're going to be doing a tour here of the local uh, casinos, right? Because when you think about it, casinos are a big deal, uh, a big uh, institution as well, usually with multiple food units. They go through a lot of food. And so when we look at these opportunities, uh, one of them was uh, we were we were called by the CEO of, uh, of a hospital in Georgia, right? Clinch Memorial. Uh, it was awesome. This And, and the, you know, it was a, an interesting call. And uh, it started off with their leadership saying, hey, you know what? I, I drive by these blueberry fields on my way to the hospital every day, and I can't seem to get them into our hospital. How are you doing it there in Sacramento? And yeah. so we kind of explained the process and what it is and, you know, contracts and everything else. Uh, then you also had uh, uh, in uh, uh, Portland, Maine. Um, so Maine Medical Center, all the way on the other side of the United States, uh, you know, sent their chef out here for a week to look at our program to try to implement a similar program at their hospital. Uh, and they're also a teaching um research hospital facility as well, much very similar in size to us. 
And so, yes, there have been other institutions reaching out. And uh, and again, we're an open book. We're not trying to say that, oh, this is the number one program and we're so great. No, it's about this is how we're doing it and it works for us. And these are the outcomes that we're seeing. Right. And then some of those places are going to have to use freezers a little bit more because when I mean, you look at seasonal, seasonal in California is different than seasonal is in Ohio. And so, but I think what you're identifying is that there's ways they can all be heading this direction, whether or not they're fortunate as we are climate wise to be surrounded with so much fruit and vegetable production right around here. But there's there's all kinds of programs that um, that I keep hearing you mentioned uh, highly that the people know what you're doing and they they like what you're doing. Let, let me ask you, I just want to wrap up here and let me let me ask you when when you look at this that you find yourself in, um, what makes you feel the best, I guess, about where you are right now, but maybe even better? What makes you optimistic about the next several years? Well, you know what? Um... I, I I never saw myself in a, in a in a hospital setting. That was never my goal. You kind of touched on that er, that earlier with you know coming from restaurants. I come from fine dining, the hotel industry, and from sports, right? Stadiums and arenas. And uh, <clears throat> the reason why this looked so appealing was because I I wanted to take what I had figured out logistics wise on feeding the masses of people. And applying that knowledge to do something good with it, right? Which is now trying to support a healthier community. You know, how do we educate on this and healthier community? Like that's fiscally uh, impacting the region, right? By how we purchase, you know, that's that's impacting the region. So to talk about how I feel about where we're at right now, I, I feel pretty pretty darn good. It's difficult. Change is difficult for everyone. I'm a change maker. That's I say that very transparently to anybody and people can take that for what it's worth some people don't like change some people welcome change and uh ultimately we can say and agree that this program is different looks a lot different than what it looked like six years ago Mm -hmm. and it's not done there's still more to come right and so and what i what i look forward to is the future to see like how is this program again the elephant in the room is that it's more expensive if this was cheap and easy to do Everybody would do it. I say that all the time. the The status quo is they're doing the cheapest and easiest thing possible, but that doesn't really help our climate. We're looking at we got problems that we can see, you know, light as day out outside or the rain, right? Or these monsoon weathers or atmospheric rivers that we all of a sudden have now. Um, you know, we could talk about sustainability. All these things are not taken into account to the the current conditions that we do within our food system. Um, and it needs to be exploited. And this program is showing there's another way. The more sustainable way to pay for this, though, because we're paying for it up front, is the long game. If we look at reallocating resources that we already spend money on, let's call it uh, our healthcare insurance, right? You know, we look at how much is spent on healthcare in the back end for treatment. Well, if we look at, say, reallocating some of those funds, to the front side and be proactive with a new program and say, starting from children, which is why I like to work with schools and say, Hey, how are we conditioning our children? What are we serving them as they're growing up? Right. How do you keep them out of the hotel that I work at that I never want to see anybody stay at that is called a hospital. Right. That's really what this is. Right. And so it's like, but I'm Mm -hmm. trying to keep people out of it. So maybe it's those insurance companies looking at the long game, of a 20 year plan 
and saying, hey, how would they keep my children? What's the plan to keep my children from becoming diabetic, right? And how can they influence that part? So yeah, to answer your question, I, I'm, I'm happy where we're, you know, where I'm sitting and I'm excited to see what's what's in store in the future. Well, I'm excited to see what's in store in the future, too. And a lot of people are going to be excited to think about what we've been talking about. If they want to understand your program better, is there some way that they can find it online to be able to see um, see what you've done and what you're doing and how they could find more information? Sure. You know, um, what, what UC Davis was able to do as uh, UC Davis Health, uh, they created a Good Food is Good Medicine at UC Davis. Uh, and so if you just Googled that, it'll link you to this whole program. Um, and it's one of the hashtags I like to use is that good food is good medicine. Uh, also, I like to say hashtag keep it simple. Because uh, you know what? Uh, I heard, uh, you know, Chef uh, Jose Andres once say, it's like sometimes very complicated problems don't take complicated answers. It can be simple. And my simple answer right now is just saying, you know, I know where all our food comes from. Do you? Right? Yeah. Not, you just have to ask the question, you know, where where did this uh where did this carrot come from? Where are these tomatoes coming from? Right? Well, it's ironic. We're wrapping up our conversation and you know, you are the director of culinary operations at UC Davis, Santana Diaz. And and you know, we wrap it up with the 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 best answer is is a question or maybe the question where our food comes from and to see more institutions like you're doing leading the way being able to answer that question and sourcing as much as you can local and it's good for the farmers and it's good for your patients it's good for the community and it's good for listeners of farm to table talk so santana thank you for being on farm to table talk thank you for having me roger you take care You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.